May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Today, as you are well aware, is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Christmas is coming. We'll be here this Friday. Children in our congregation and all across the country are anticipating the coming of Christmas. They are filled with longing, with desire. They are waiting, perhaps not too patiently, but they're waiting for what Santa or mom or dad or grandma and grandpa will bring them for Christmas. They are hoping, hoping for what they desire. As Christians, we too are to be a people of hope, hope that is filled with anticipation. In our psalm that is appointed for today, we have before us a writer who is expressing hope. It is a psalm that is filled with anticipation, with longing, with desire. As Christians, you and I must ask ourselves, what are we anticipating? For what is our soul longing? What is its desire? And we must also ask ourselves, what shapes, what informs, What drives those longings and those desires? The psalmist is looking for, waiting for, anticipating, longing for a restoration, a time of rebuilding, a time when God shall fulfill all that God has promised to His people, so that it shall be as Jesus taught us to pray, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, In the beginning of the psalm, the verses we did not read, The writer looks back at David as he sought to build the temple. And one may recall that time, a period. David had built all kinds of houses and had fortified the city and had secured the land and was established as king. And he came to realize there was a resting place for him, but there was no resting place for the ark. And he desired the ark to be brought to Jerusalem, to be brought to Mount Zion. So they looked around and found where the ark was, the ark that had been designed by God and established in Moses' day, had been kept with the people through the generations. And you may know the story of how David sent for the ark, and it turned into a great tragedy because they didn't send for the ark according to the pattern that God had established. And Uzzah was killed in the midst of that, and David was grieved in his heart and set the ark aside, and went back and sought the Lord. But eventually the ark came. The ark was significant in the lives of the people of Israel, for it represented and symbolized and displayed for them the assurance of the presence of God in their midst. And so we hear the psalmist cry out, Arise, Lord, to your resting place, You and the ark of your strength. Now what the psalmist is doing when he thinks about the ark and when he thinks about David, when he thinks about what he's anticipating and looking for, he remembers the promise of God to David regarding an heir. And we read at verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. What I would say to you this morning 
is that Jesus is that Son. Over and over, you hear the crowds as they draw on this, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of David. And over and over, you hear them saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. We heard, hinted, heard it hinted at in the gospel text that Robert read a while ago. And there comes an occasion in Jesus' own life when he's received a series of questions from some Pharisees, and then he begins to ask them a question. And he asks them this question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And what Jesus is revealing to them by his question and by their answer or their inability to answer is that he is this word of God. He is the Word of the Father made incarnate. He is both Son of God and Son of David. And it matters as we celebrate and anticipate Christmas this Friday. It matters who was born in the stable. It matters whose birth we celebrate this coming Christmas season. Now, many years ago, I heard a man who was serving on staff at an evangelical church say something along these lines. Christmas is fine, and Christmas is good, but it's Easter that counts. Listen, folks, Easter doesn't count if Christmas doesn't matter. You cannot separate Easter from Christmas, and you cannot separate Christmas from Easter. It matters who it was that was lying in that stable, that it was the incarnate Son of God in the flesh who comes to redeem His people. And so the psalmist, in his longing, in his desire, in his anticipation, recalls the promise to David that a son would sit on his throne, that he will sit as king. And then the psalmist also reminds himself and his audience of the significance of Zion. And he says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it as his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Now, from a political and economic and even geographical perspective, there was nothing special about Mount Zion on which the city of Jerusalem was built. There was nothing of any particular favor about it to commend itself to David as king or to the Lord for his glory and resting place may remind us of a song that we will perhaps sing this Christmas Eve, O little town of Bethlehem. Yet God chose Zion, God chose Bethlehem, and God has chosen His church, His people. Listen to what the psalmist declared about Zion. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In another psalm it says, Sing praises to the Lord, who dwells in Zion, declare his deeds among the peoples. 
And in another place we read, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come from Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, Israel shall be glad. And in another spot, blessed is the person whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the roads to Zion. And in another psalm, but of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. In this Advent season, in this time of anticipation, in this time of hope, we have to ask ourselves, are we living by faith in the promises and are we leaning into those promises or are we living by the law? The Apostle Paul picks up this notion when he writes his letter to the church at Galatia. And in the fourth chapter, we read these words. Tell me, he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And the Apostle John, banished to the Isle of Patmos, will see this Jerusalem descending as a bride adorned for her husband. Because through faith in Jesus, we become the children of Zion. As Jesus says to the woman at the well, remember the story, he's cutting through Samaria, the disciples went in to find a McDonald's so they could bring some lunch back. And Jesus enters into this dialogue with this woman. And he says to her, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that is where they were in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You and I, through faith in Jesus, are sons and daughters of Zion. We are those who are born from above when we are those who are born of the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And in this Advent season, we must ask ourselves, how are we living and how shall we live now? There's three things that I would encourage you to do. One is to look back and to look up. One, to look back on all that God has done, that God has done in the history of his people. The Bible is the story of God and God's people. The story of God seeking to bring about redemption and restoration of all that he has created. We look back on what God has done. We also look back on what God has done in our own lives, the faithfulness that we have experienced and the blessings that we have received. But I'd also encourage you to look up, to look straight up and out of yourself to Jesus, 
who's the author and the finisher of our faith. So we must look. As the psalmist looked to the promise, we too must look. We must also learn to lean, to lean into the promises. Questions we can ask ourselves is, on what am I leaning for strength in this life? From where am I drawing my hope? From whence is my help coming? The promises of God we're called to lean into. Sometimes in our journey we get confused. And we think somehow that we have to impress God. And somehow we have to make promises to God. When the reality is we're called to lean into God. Sometimes we get to be like little Johnny. You may know the story. Little Johnny was coming home from school one day early in December. And he walked past on his way home from school Miller's Hardware Store. And in the window was a shiny red bicycle. It was the coolest bicycle Johnny had ever seen. When Johnny set his eyes upon that bicycle, something stirred within him a longing and a desire to own that bicycle. And he wanted it for Christmas in the worst way. Johnny goes home and goes in the house and goes upstairs into his bedroom, and all he can think about is that red bicycle. Finally, Johnny got down on his knees and he said, Dear Jesus, if you give me that new red bicycle for Christmas, I promise you that I'll keep my room clean every day between now and Christmas. Johnny gets up, he cleans up his whole room. He's feeling pretty good. Day or two later, something's on the floor. You think, oh, I'll get that tomorrow. And pretty soon, more things and more things. The next thing he knows, a few days, several days later, that room's a mess again, and Johnny's all discouraged. And he's feeling bad up there in his bedroom. I'm not going to get that bicycle. I broke my promise. What am I going to do? And at that time, he hears his mother calling, Johnny, come down for dinner. And Johnny thinks, ah, oh, I've got an idea. And Johnny drops down to his knees. He says, dear Jesus, If you get me that new red bicycle for Christmas, I promise that every night I will help my mother with dishes without her having to ask. So dinner came, and they ate, and dinner was done. Johnny's up, he's grabbing dishes, he's cleaning the table. His mother looks at his dad, his dad looks at his mother, and they think, when's the principal going to call to tell us what Johnny did at school today? A few nights later, Johnny's up in his room, and he hears his mother calling, come down and help with the dishes. He's like, oh no, I've blown it. He's helpless. He's discouraged. I'm not going to get that red bicycle. Finally, the last day of school came before vacation. Johnny walks Christmas break, and he's on his way home, and he stops again. He looks at that bicycle, and he's feeling hopeless now. He goes home, and he goes through the front door, and he happens to look in the living room. And under the tree is the nativity set. He grabs a statue of Mary. He goes upstairs to his bedroom. He puts the statue in a box, shoves it under his bed, and says, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) Now listen, folks. God is not faithful because of the promises you keep. God is faithful to the promises he's made. And our response is to lean in to the promises that God has has made to us. No matter how dark and dim and grim it is in the nasty now and now, we learn to lean into the promises of God. 
And then there's a third thing. We must live by the word of God. How are we living in this Advent season? How are we living in this time? We hear in the gospel, Mary say, according to your word, so be it unto me. That's a cry of faith on the response of that young maiden. When God comes to her with this incredible promise of the incarnation of Jesus within her very womb, and though she could not possibly in that moment have understood everything that it implied, she makes this declaration of faith. According to your word, so be it unto me. Paul says as he prays for the church at Galatia that Christ would be formed in them. That's God's desire. It's for our hearts to be the dwelling place for us to live by the word that Christ would be formed in us. So we must ask ourselves, how are we living in this season in which we live? How are we living in this time of political divide? Jonathan Turtle, an Anglican priest, wrote these words recently. In a society that is increasingly polarized along political lines, I wonder if the vocation of the church isn't to resist the false dichotomy of left-right and rather to occupy the space in between warring factions to lift up the cross, inviting people to lay down their ideologies for the sake of the gospel. Whatever else this psalmist is seeking to do, he is seeking to engender hope among the people of God, and the church must ask herself in this day in which we live, are we seeking to engender hope in the world in which we live? How are we as the church today engendering hope? How are we living in this pandemic? Last week, at the hospital where I'm a chaplain, I went to one of the critical care units where I was asked to come. There was an ISRN. I didn't know her. She was all masked up. I couldn't even tell you what she looked like today if I saw her probably. Didn't know her. But she was ready for me. Gown and helped me put on gown and gloves and face masks and goggles. I saw everybody else wearing a head covering, so I asked for a head covering. One of the nurses said, you don't need that. I'm calling HR this week and reporting her for bold offensive or something. <laughs> and there it was my task to go into the room of a COVID patient to inform him that his brother, a COVID patient in another unit, had died that afternoon. I sent a text to a chaplain friend at another hospital in another state telling him about my experience, and he texted back, Yuck, did you actually go in? Church, we must go in with one message, the message that engenders hope, the message that proclaims the gospel, the message that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus in the world in which we live. We're not the first generation to live through a pandemic. They've come and gone throughout the history of the human race. N.T. Wright, the retired bishop, Anglican bishop of England, wrote and commented on the pandemic these were about Christians in early centuries that would stay in the cities when a pandemic came. The wealthy could afford to flee, the pagans would leave, but they left the sick behind and the Christians would stay and they would minister to those who were sick, even to those who were non-Christian. 
And those who were non-Christian that these Christians were ministering to would ask them, why do you do this? They'd say, because we follow a man named Jesus. Many of those pagans became believers because hope was engendered among them. And in this season in which we live, this climate and time in which we live, may St. Andrew's Church look, lean, and live by the Word of God. May we be a people who engender hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.